welcome to the Church in the Peak podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit churchinthepeak.org. Neil's going to come and speak. Okay, good morning. We're, we're continuing in our series in Joshua this morning, and we're looking at Joshua chapter 9, which is, in my Bible, it says, Deceived by the Gibeonites. And when Hannah said to me the other day, what are you preaching on? I said, oh, I'm preaching about the Gibeonites. And she thought, for some reason, I said Hiroshima. <laughs> oh, I said Joshua, and she thought it was Hiroshima. So I'm, I'm not preaching on Hiroshima. <laughs> I'm preaching on Joshua. <laughs> it was one of those random things that uh, came up. Okay, we're going to read, um, I'm going to read Joshua chapter 9 in a minute from the message because uh, this story in chapter 9 is hilarious. I was thinking about it as I was reading it. It actually could be a Disney film or something, this chapter, because it is so ridiculous. It reminded me of Shrek, uh, actually. But as we go through, you're going to see why I'm saying that. But um, basically, it is about a deception that happens to the children of Israel, and and Joshua included. And um, the background is that, as we know, the children of Israel have defeated Jericho, the walls of Jericho have come down, and then they move on to the next city, which is what Peter spoke about, the city of Ai, and uh, they have a go at that one twice, and finally they defeat uh, Ai, and the news of the children of Israel beginning to take these cities begins to spread. And so there are two responses to the children of Israel, and going forward into the promised land. The first response is that kings to the west of the Jordan River decide that they are going to join together to face Israel because there's strength in numbers. So uh, we're going to read in a minute. It says the kings west of the Jordan combine to fight as one army. That's one response. The second response is what we're going to be looking at today, which is the Gibeonites who decide that they are going to try and deceive Israel into believing that they are not Gibeonites, that they are another people from a land far, far away. And if you've you've watched Shrek, you'll know what I'm talking about. Land far, far away. So as I was uh, beginning to read through this, it reminded me of Blackadder. And uh, Baldrick, if you've watched Blackadder, always has a cunning plan. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get the audiovisuals to work this morning. I wanted to play one. I started looking at them, and the trouble is when you go on YouTube and you start to look at it, just type in cunning plan Baldrick. It comes up with loads. And you start off, you look at one, and it's absolutely hilarious. Then you look at another, and I ended up looking at about ten. But this is a cunning plan. And unlike Baldrick's plans, which never work and are completely useless, this works. It's amazing. So, I want to give you the background first of all. God's instruction to the children of Israel was very specific. Okay, and we have to go back into Exodus to see what that instruction was. So, Exodus 23, God says to the children of Israel, this is through Moses... He says this to them. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, 
and Jebusites, so you may live there. And I will destroy them completely. You must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. You must serve only the Lord your God. If you do, I will bless you with food and water and I will protect you from illness. There will be no miscarriages or infertility in your land and I will give you long, full lives. I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the people whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites, etc. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population is increased enough to take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the eastern wilderness to the Euphrates River. I will hand over to you all the people now living in the land and you will drive them out ahead of you. Make no treaties with them or their gods. They must not live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me. If you serve their gods, you will be caught in the trap of idolatry. Very specific. Okay, and so specific that he repeats this again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. All the Ittites are going to be destroyed. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons or daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. That's a fantastic verse. And it's true of you. You are God's special treasure whether you believe it or not that is the truth you are not worth a pound you are worth 250,000 you are God's special treasure hallelujah okay now that's the background why is that important okay it's important because God says to them very clearly you must not make a covenant with any of these people You can make covenants with other people who are not in the promised land, but you must not make a covenant with the Jebusites, Hivites, and all the ites. That is really key to Joshua chapter 9. So let's read Joshua chapter 9. All the kings west of the Jordan, in the hills and the foothills, and along the Mediterranean seacoast, north towards Lebanon, 
the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Girgashites and Jebusites got the news. And the news is that Israel is on the move and is destroying the cities. So they came together in a coalition to fight against Joshua and Israel under a single command. That's what I've already mentioned. The people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai and cooked up a ruse. They posed as travellers, their donkeys loaded with patched sacks and mended wineskins, threadbare sandals on their feet, tattered clothes on their bodies, nothing but dry crusts and crumbs for food. They came to Joshua at Gilgal and spoke to them in Israel and said, We've come from a far off country. Make a covenant with us. Knowing that Joshua cannot make a covenant with the people who are near. Because that's what God has said. So they are telling them they have come from a country far, far away. That is really important. And the men of Israel said to these Hivites, at this point they don't know they're Hivites, how do we know you aren't local people? How could we then make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we will be your servants. And Joshua said, who are you? Where did you come from? And they said, from a far off country, very far away. Your servants came because we'd heard such great things about God, your God, all the things he did in Egypt. And the two Amorite kings across the Jordan, King Sion of Hebshon and King Og of Bashan, who ruled in Ashtaroth, our leaders and everyone else in the country told us, pack up some food for the road and go and meet them. Tell them we're your servants. Make a covenant with us. The bread was warm from the oven when we packed and left to come and see you. Now look at it, crusts and crumbs. And our cracked and mended wineskins, good as new when we filled them, and our clothes and sandals in tatters from the long, hard traveling. The men of Israel looked them over and accepted the evidence. But they didn't ask God about it. So Joshua made peace with them and formalized it with a covenant to guarantee their lives. The leaders of the congregation swore to it. And then, three days after making the covenant, they learned that they were, in fact, the next-door neighbors who'd been living there all along. The people of Israel broke camp and set out three days later. They reached these towns, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel didn't attack them. The leaders of the congregation had given their word before the God of Israel, but the congregation was up in arms over the leaders. The leaders were united in their response to the congregation. We promise them in the presence of God of Israel, we can't lay a hand on them now, but we can do this. We will let them live so we don't get blamed for breaking our promise. Then the leaders continued, we'll let them live, but they will be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire congregation. And that's what happened. The leader's promise was kept. And Joshua called the Gibeonites together and said, Why did you lie to us, telling we live far, far away from you, when you are next-door neighbors? For that you are cursed. From now on, it's menial labor for you, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua and they said, We got the message loud and clear that God, your God, commanded through his servant Moses to give you the whole country and destroy everything living in it. We were terrified because of you. That's why we did this. That's it. We're at your mercy. Whatever you decide is right for us. Do it. 
And that's what they did. Joshua delivered them from the power of the people of Israel so they didn't kill them. But he made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of God at the place God chooses, and they still are. Okay. Sorry, it's a bit of a long story, but we need to get the full picture. So, Joshua chapter 9. Key verse in chapter 9 is verse 14. So the Israelites examined the food, but they didn't consult the Lord. That is the key verse. Now, when I've preached over the last few times, almost every time this has come up, that we tend to go into things in our lives without first consulting God. And when I read this chapter again, I thought, I can't go and preach that again because I'm preaching the same thing week after week. Why am I doing that? And I felt the Lord just say to me, you give what I give you. Let me take the consequences. And it reminded me of a story that J. John told uh, about a church where they had a new minister. And uh, he came and he preached on the first Sunday. Uh, It was a good sermon. Everyone enjoyed it. And the second Sunday came and he preached the same sermon. And they began to think, oh, what's going on here? He's preached the same sermon twice. Maybe he just forgot or maybe he wanted to emphasize it. So the third Sunday they all went and he preached the same sermon again. And anyway, this happened six times. And in the end, the leaders thought, we better go and talk to him. So they went to him and they said, you know, we don't want to be rude or anything. Haven't you got any other sermons you can preach? You know, you've preached the same sermon six times. And he said, yes, but when you start to act on what I'm preaching, then I'll change it. So I'm sorry if I'm preaching the same thing, but I think there's something in there for us to really grasp. And God is such a gracious God that he bashes us on the head until we take notice. Maybe bashes isn't the right word. Nudges us in the side, like your wife does when you're in trouble. You get that nudge in the side, in the ribs, don't you? Okay. This was a huge mistake that Joshua made. Because Joshua knew that he should ask God what on earth was going on here. It is so vague, it is quite unbelievable. Three times they ask him where they come from. And three times they say from a land far, far away. Three times. They don't get any more specific. They don't ask them where, what town, what city, what are you called, where have you come from, who's your king. There's a million questions they could have asked them. They don't ask any of them. They just accept their story that they're from far, far away. And it's quite unbelievable. So I was looking at this and I was thinking, how does this happen to Joshua, who is the leader of the children of Israel? How does this happen? And there are three things that God spoke to me about. The first one is deception. We know this was a clever plan, and it was so clever that it actually worked. But had Joshua asked the right questions, and had Joshua asked God, God would have revealed that this was deceitful. 
They were deceived by a lie and a clever plan. It all looked okay because they were producing the wineskins that were old. They were producing the crusts out of their pockets. Their clothes were all worn. Their shoes had been dusty. It looked like they had come from a faraway country, but in fact they hadn't. So the deception worked. We need to be careful in our own lives because the enemy will come and he will try and be deceitful towards us. You know, the Bible says he is a liar from the beginning. And he will try and deceive us in all kinds of ways in our lives. And it's so important for us to go back to God and say, is this right? They, they knew something was wrong here. You don't ask someone three times where have you come from if you don't think there is something wrong. They, they felt something was wrong here, but they didn't go to God and ask him. And hence, they make this mistake. The enemy is a deceiver. The Bible tells us that. And he uses anything to deceive us. He will tell you, that's okay, you can do that. It's not going to affect your walk with God. It's fine. Everyone else is doing it. Carry on. He is a liar. What you hear from him is lies. The second thing is distraction. They were distracted by what they saw. What they saw looked perfectly fine they saw the crusts they saw the old clothes they saw the dusty feet the shoes worn out they saw what looked to back up the story they were distracted by what they saw Fillmore in his book on this um, on Joshua says this when we neglect God's word we invariably make decisions on what we see When we neglect God's word, we invariably make decisions on what we see. And they were distracted by what they saw. They kept producing all the things. Look at our wineskins. Look at these crusts in my pocket. Look at my shoes. I've been trudging through the desert from a land far, far away. And now I've arrived with you. You can make a covenant with us. We are your servants. Distraction. What distracts us? Life. What distracts you when you decide to have a quiet time or a noisy time or to read your Bible? What distracts us? The busyness of life. I can guarantee that if I'm preaching, I go into my study and I start to get my notes together and everything, suddenly that picture that has been laying on the side for three months that needs to be put on the wall suddenly becomes really urgent that I do it in that moment. And the enemy is great at distracting us from our relationship with God. The other thing is habit. 
our habit tends to push our actions in a particular way. So if our habit is that I just go ahead and then I ask God afterwards, that habit continues in our daily life. And we need to change that habit. This is what we were talking about a few weeks ago, was having God at the beginning, rather than going ahead and then saying, oh God, I've made this decision, will you now bless it please? God says, whoa, hold on a minute. You need to come and ask me over here before you start down this road. Start at the beginning, get me in at the beginning, and then I can help you. Making the decision and then asking God to bless it is not the way to do it. God is gracious. He can change anything, and that's what we're going to see this morning. But habit is quite important. If our habit is to do that, you'll find that, naturally speaking, that is what you do. And it's disappointing in the sense that Joshua's habit was to go to God. And yet here, he doesn't. What about pride? We will have pride in our decision-making process. I can do this. I can make a decision for myself. And I think allied with pride is control. We like to be in control. So does God. So I think these are some of the things that distract us in our life. The other thing I just want to mention briefly is social media. Just this week... um, I was on my phone looking at the news and uh, Virgin Media this week had a, or last week had an outage on their system. So for a day, nearly a whole day, if you had a Virgin Media phone, you couldn't get any Wi-Fi or signal. And uh, I thought, well, that's quite interesting. I just read about you know what had happened and everything and then there was a link and you could follow this link to Twitter and on Twitter everyone that had Virgin Media were going absolutely ballistic this was afterwards and some of the comments were quite amazing basically you have ruined my life I couldn't cope yesterday I couldn't interact with all my friends and it was like the world had ended And I was thinking, my goodness, I think we're addicted to social media. (laughs) Anyway, on an iPhone, if you have an iPhone, um, there is a thing now on an Apple iPhone where you can see how much you have been on your phone in a week. It's called screen time. Can I ask you, at some point this week, to look at your screen time. I guarantee it will shock you, because it shocked me. And Julia and I had this argument about who's on their phone the most. And I said to Julia, it's definitely you. She spends her life on Facebook or whatever it is. And uh, so we had this argument, and then I did my screen time, and I was like, oh, (laughs) mother. 
Now, the good thing about Apple is that it does split it down. So if you do lots of work emails, it does split those down. Yeah, Yeah. I don't do so many anymore. But it does split it down into emails, um, social. What's the other one we spoke? Games. Maps. Maps? (laughs) Okay. It does split it down. So there is some work stuff in there. The only problem is it doesn't split it down into the Bible app, which is unfortunate, um, because that would have given me some credibility, you know. (laughs) But social media is a huge issue. I have travelled to London for the last 15 years every week, as you know. And... um, Just going down in the last year, you sit on a train. Well, no, in fact, you stand at the platform and everyone is on their phone. Everyone. There's probably two people with a newspaper. Everyone else is on their phone. You get on the train and everyone is on their phone. You get off the train and people are walking to the ticket barrier on their phone. You get on the underground, everyone is on their phone. And it is a huge issue. And I really believe social media is a huge potential issue for the church. It is a massive distraction. Compare how much time you spend on social media as you do reading the Bible. That's a good one. Listen, I'm not saying I've got it sorted because I haven't. But it's a good test to do. The other thing is, how much would you miss it if you didn't have it? I know there are people that do uh, weekends where they turn off all their social media. Don't do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's all turned off. And so many of those people I've noticed have said it was, it was a revolution. I felt totally free. I was completely different. I was talking to people, having conversations, and so forth. So we just need to be careful about social media. It's a huge distraction. Do that this week. See how much time you spend on social media as opposed to how much you spend reading the Bible. That's an interesting one. And I think that's part of the busyness of life. We are all busy, but actually we have time to do social media. So there's a, there's a balance in there somewhere. Distraction. The enemy will use anything he can to distract you from relationship with God. Anything. It doesn't have to be social media. It can be exercise. It can be your hobby. It can be absolutely anything. See God in everything you do. We just went on holiday and uh, we went to a beautiful part of Mallorca and it's mountainous and everything. And just as we were walking, just, just seeing the beauty of God's creation. And it was funny, we had this conversation about why do we have to come to Mallorca when we live in the Peak District? It's a bit weird. Because we take the Peak District for granted. But... You go to Mallorca and you see God's creation. See God wherever you are, whatever situation you're in. It's amazing. 
I remember being at Wembley a few years ago in the cup final, and I think I, when I spoke on it at church, I stood there and, and I thought, I wonder how many people in Wembley, 75,000 people, I wonder how many people are saved. And it just came as a complete revelation to me that I was saved. And in that moment, you just think, thank you, Lord, for saving me. I want these other people to be saved. But actually, you've come and you've saved me. Fantastic. Okay, the third thing is something that is a little bit insidious and may not affect us all, but I think it's important, and that is flattery and pride. These people come to the children of Israel, and they are full of flattery. And they are full of, oh, we've heard how amazing your God is and that you're destroying all these towns and we were in fear of our lives and uh, we want to serve you. We're from a land far, far away and we want to serve you. And I believe pride gets in at this point because what pride does, it says, oh, you can make that decision for yourself. You don't need to ask God to come and make the decision because you've just taken Jericho. You've just taken AI. How amazing are you guys? So instead of Joshua saying, Lord, I need your help, he takes this flattery on board and he makes his own decision. God hates pride. He hates it. The Bible tells us he loves humility. They begin to believe their own publicity. So Joshua makes the decision. They forget to give glory to God. At that point, he could have said to them, it is nothing to do with us. It is Jehovah. He could have said that. Because that's the truth. It's not the children of Israel. They're a nightmare. They're all over the place. Up one minute, down the next, doing their own thing, breaking God's commands. It's not us, it's Jehovah. But he doesn't. I think we need to be careful of pride and flattery in our own lives as well, especially if you're in leadership. It's good to give encouragement, but flattery in the wrong place can lead to pride, which is a dangerous place to be. God knows our hearts. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says this. He's talking to the children of Israel and he's telling them, what he's going to do for them. And he says, When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations and decrees that I'm going to give you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and your herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. 
Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. Now why does God go to the trouble of telling them that? It's because he knows what our heart is like. He knows what the heart of man is like. If we could take anything for ourselves, we would. That's why the work of grace in our life has to be 100% God and 0% us. Because if it was 5% us, we would glory in that 5%. Even though God had 95%. And so God says, listen, you have to understand my work of grace is 100% me, 0% of you. You were dead. You had nothing to give. I didn't see a spark of goodness in you and think, oh, I'll take that little spark and I'll produce something amazing. No, there is no good thing in you. God says your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's where we were. But now in the grace of God, he comes and he changes us. And he makes us more like Jesus. But God knows the heart of man. That's why he has this in there. That's why he's talking to them about it. Don't forget. It is me that has done this. It's not you. And we need to remember that always. It's not me, Phil and Peter. It's not us. It's God. He will build his church. Not us. We take no pride We need to remain humble, all of us. Pride takes away God's glory and instead gives it to us. And it's undeserved. Pride takes away God's glory and gives it to us, which is undeserved. So, Joshua makes a covenant with the people who he thinks are from a land far, far away, whereas actually they're the next town that they're going to invade. So it's a complete mess. Six miles away the town is from where they are. And they cannot attack them because of the covenant, and so a deal is arranged where they become their servants and they serve in the temple. So what's great about this story is that even though Joshua messes up big time, God takes that mess up and he uses it for his glory. So just as we saw in the story of Rahab, salvation came to Rahab who was a prostitute, a Gentile, she wasn't a Jew. Salvation came to her, so salvation comes to the Gibeonites in this situation. And as we read at the end of that chapter... They start to work in the house of God. They work in the temple, cutting the wood, doing the water and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's just interesting, if you look forward, um, 
through the Bible, there are certain situations where the Gibeonites and people of Gibeon are mentioned. So the Ark of the Covenant stayed with David and Solomon in Gibeon. We can read that 1 Chronicles 16, verse 39 and 40. David stationed Zadok the priest and his fellow priest at the tabernacle of the Lord at the place of worship in Gibeon where they ministered to the Lord. 1 Chronicles 12, at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. It mentions Ishmael from Gibeon. And the Gibeonites are among those who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. Nehemiah 3.7, Melathin, or Melathin from Gibeon and another family of Gibeon helped rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. So God brings good out of a bad situation. And that is true of our lives. We may make mistakes. We may not invite God in. But God will invariably, because he is a gracious God, will come and help and make something right. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So really, out of this crazy situation where they completely mess up and don't invite God in, God comes and brings salvation. And to finish, I just want to read... This last paragraph, this is um, Phil Moore who writes lots of books about the Bible. This is a particular one on Joshua. It's very, very good, very, very easy to read. He says this. Despite their sin and his own foolishness, Joshua acts honorably towards the Gibeonites. As he does so, the Lord transforms his mistake into a great act of mercy. The Lord takes their flawed confession of faith in verses 9 and 10 at face value, treating their ruse as the equivalent of Rahab's scarlet cord, a desperate attempt to find salvation in Joshua. As a result, he not only rescues them from the slaughter of the Canaanites, but also makes them servants in his tabernacle and honorary members of the tribe of Benjamin. When verse 26 says Joshua saved them from the Israelites, it acts as a prophetic pointer to Jesus saving many pagans. Faith saves the lying town of Gibeon just as it saved the lying Rahab. Joshua was too busy for God and it spelt disaster. In this chapter, he warns us not to do the same. He also reassures us that the Lord turns even our mistakes around for good. The chapter ends in salvation. Let's marvel at the mercy of the God who keeps on giving. Hallelujah. I love that. It's just such a good way to end. And um, yeah, we praise God for his goodness to us. There are things we need to learn. There are things we need to be aware of. There are things we can learn from Joshua and this crazy story. But ultimately, God is a God of grace and mercy.